Welcome to the Unity Baptist Church Sermon Podcast. Today we are starting a new relevant and powerful series in the Beatitudes. In these talks, Senior Pastor Heath Bauer will be leaning into what they mean and what they meant. Today's talk is called Life Signs, Beatitudes, a growth chart for believers. If you are in the Ashland or Tri-State area, we would love to see you. More information on how you can connect with us at Unity will follow today's talk. And now, here's Heath. chapter 5. We're going to begin a sermon series on the introduction of the Sermon on the Mount. It's a passage that we tend to call the Beatitudes. It gets that name not so much from the Bible as much as it is a Latin translation of the first word, blessed. It comes from the Latin beatus, and so we call it the Beatitudes. It doesn't just mean be this attitude. It actually means blessed. And so this word blessed has led people to a lot of sometimes bizarre conclusions about how to use, teach, and apply the Beatitudes. Often when you hear the Beatitudes taught, it's here's how God wants you to live a cosmically happy life. If you're sad, God's going to make you happy. If you're down, God's going to lift you up. If you're this, God's going to help you. And he's just going to make your earthly life so great because of these Beatitudes. And that's not at all what it is teaching. This word blessed, to understand the Beatitudes, you have to understand what it means to be blessed. What is, it? What is that word? Okay. It's a, it's, the word here, it can be in some, it has a measure of the word happiness contained within it, but, we, but it's a much deeper word than what is often taught. It's a word that means someone or something which possesses the fullness of God. It's a word that describes believers who have been immersed into Christ. When we say that somebody is blessed by God, we're talking about somebody who is a believer. They possess the fullness of God. If you want to understand that word blessed better, we'll look at it in a different context. Romans chapter 4, verse 8. It's not on your PowerPoint. Uh, Romans chapter 4, verse 8 says, Blessed is the man whom God will not uh, impute sin. So a blessed person is somebody whose God has forgiven them their sins. They are blessed. They possess the fullness of God within them, and they begin to exhibit the fruit of the Spirit, one of which is joy. And so that is the Beatitudes. They're descriptions of a believer. Blessed, you might even say saved, is the person who is poor in spirit. Blessed or born again in the life of Christ, possessing the fullness of God, is the person who mourns. They mourn over their sin. Not simply mourning over a loved one. Uh, Blessed are those who, and then he goes down through this list, giving you an understanding, this is what a true believer looks like. To understand the Beatitudes, we need to understand a couple pieces of context. First of all, in Matthew chapter 4, verse 23, just a few verses before Jesus was going to give us what is called the Sermon on the Mount, it reads, and he went through all all Galilee, teaching in their synagogues and proclaiming the, there's the key words, gospel of the kingdom and healing every disease and every affliction of the people. And so what we have to understand is the The Beatitudes find themselves in the context of the Sermon on the Mount, which is in the context of Jesus preaching the gospel of the kingdom. So whatever the Sermon on the Mount is, you could summarize it as it is the gospel of the kingdom. Jesus is showing us what kingdom life is like. This is what, and before he does that, 
He's gotta show people this is what a kingdom individual looks like. This is what a citizen of the kingdom of God looks like. Because if Jesus jumped right into the rest of the Sermon on the Mount, everybody there would be like, yeah, 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 got it, that's me. We're all children of the kingdom, Jesus, look around, we're Jews. All Jews are going to heaven. That wasn't clearly true, but they felt that way. And so before Jesus could talk about the rest of the kingdom life, he had to first stop. And this is, this is really a, a punch in the throat to the, a lot of these Jewish religionists, those who felt like their religion, their attachment to Israel somehow you know, made them right with God. And so Jesus is getting right to the heart of things. If this isn't you, you're not actually a child of the kingdom. You might be a Jew, but you're going to hell. That's what he was saying. Remember, he told the Pharisees of all people in John 8, you are of your father, the devil. Not only were they Jews, but they were high-ranking religious leaders amongst the Jews. And Jesus said, you're still not a child of the kingdom. So before I can tell you about the kingdom, which is the, the, the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5 through 7, I've got to give you an introduction here. Let me show you who this really applies to. It's these people who possess these beatitudes, these things that arise. You don't do these things to be saved, but these things are characteristics of a believer. You will see these in a believer's life and increasing as they mature in their faith. So to understand what the gospel of the kingdom is, we have to understand kingdom. What is a kingdom? A kingdom is where a sovereign ruler, a sovereign king, it's that realm over which he is allowed to serve as their sovereign, their master. Now for Jesus, he's very much literally going to reign here on earth. After the great tribulation, there's gonna be a, a period of time where Jesus reigns on earth for a literal 1,000 year reign on earth. But that's not just the kingdom. The kingdom is anywhere a sovereign rules, it's that realm, and for us today, it's right here. It's within our hearts that we allow Jesus to rule over our hearts right now because every believer has done that. If you're truly saved, Romans 10, 9, remember it says, if you confess with your mouth that Jesus is what? That he's your Lord. That means I confess, Jesus, you're my king, you're my sovereign, you're my master. You have a rightful claim to me, all I own, all I possess, all that I am, my time, how I speak, everything, it belongs to you and I surrender it to you and, and joyfully so. And so all of us are already living under the rule of a king, even though he's not physically present, physically here. The truth is, if you understand the story of Robin Hood, you understand the kingdom of God. You all know Robin Hood, right? We've done it like 17 different ways just in my lifetime. I mean, there's even an animated fox in a Disney cartoon that plays Robin Hood. We all know the story, don't we? You have King Richard, who is the rightful ruler and sovereign of this land. But he goes away, he's on a spiritual mission, isn't he? And he, he allows in power another to rule in his place, Prince John and his sheriff of Nottingham. Are they good people? They're not. But for whatever reason, the king has allowed him to reign in his stead while he's away on a spiritual mission. And he's not as good as King Richard who exemplifies all that is good and holy and right and just. Instead, he's very self-centered. It's all about him and it's about money for him and taxes for him and he's unscrupulous and evil and, and everybody else in the land just kind of goes along with it because if they don't, you know, it could mean their neck and they're dead. Or if they, sometimes they'll go along with Prince John because there's money to be made 
Why wouldn't I go along with him? I could get rich now. I could get power now while the king is away under this prince. I could elevate my status in life. And so there are those who compromised with the prince. But there's a group who didn't, isn't there? There's a group of people, a small band of people bound together by truth and loyalty that are one true king. And they are the people of joy, right? They are the merry men. And they're not merry because they're living a life of wealth and luxury, are they? Where are they living? They're living in the trees. I mean, they're the eternal Boy Scouts. They're, they're out in the trees. They're cooking over campfires. You know, they're washing their clothes in the creek and the rivers. And their life, they're not merry because their life is so comfortable. They're merry because they are joyfully serving their rightful king who just happens to not be physically present. But while that king is gone, they allow him to rule in their hearts. And they, while he is away, will voluntarily choose to live according to his values and his, right, his righteousness. That is a believer. We have a sovereign king who's gone away on a spiritual mission. He has gone to prepare a place for us, hasn't he? And while he is gone, there is somebody who has been allowed a certain measure of government on earth. The prince and power of the air, not Prince John, but the prince and power of the air, right? When Satan tempted Jesus, remember Satan never lies in the presence of Jesus. And he says to Jesus that authority has been given to me over this earth, and it has. God has allowed Satan for a period of time to have a certain degree of power on earth. Why? Take it up with God. Evidently, it's going to lead to greater glory in for God in the end. But while he is the prince and power of the air, and we see, that, by the way, the rest of the world, they're cooperating with the world system because there's money to be made, there's power to be had, I don't have to be persecuted, but there's still a small band of people, God's merry men, his church, who they reject the world system and the prince and the power of the air, and they are loyal to the king that they cannot see, but they follow him because they know that he is the rightful king, that he is just, he is righteous, he's holy, and he's coming back someday, and he's going to punish the wicked, and he's going to reward the, those who are faithful to him. And so it, while he's away, we allow him to rule in our hearts. That's the kingdom of God, and God is going to make good on that someday. In the Beatitudes, Jesus will begin the gospel of the kingdom by describing the life signs of a believer. And that's what we're calling this series, Life Signs. Because honestly, when these qualities are present in your life and increasing, it's evidence of the fact that we possess the life of God within us. If you've ever been taught first aid and CPR and things like that, they don't just say, hey, if you see a guy, you know, laying down with his eyes closed, immediately begins CPR. I mean, that's a really rough way to wake up from sunbathing, you know? Some guy wrapping his lips around your face, <laughs> what do I know you? Instead, what do you do? You first, you look and you're looking for respiration, right? Is their chest rising and falling? You listen down, is there, is there breath coming out of their nostrils? Uh, you, you might take their pulse and see, is there a heartbeat in this fellow? And if there's not, a doctor can declare you legally dead because there are no life signs. Similarly, when we look at this passage here in Matthew chapter 5, we're going to see that these are the life signs of a believer. Jesus is saying, this is what a kingdom child looks like. If these are present in your life, you can see God actively working in you. If these are not present in your life, Spiritually speaking, we can declare you spiritually dead because these are present and increasing in the life of a believer. You'll notice that as we go through these Beatitudes, this week we're just giving an introduction. We're going through all the Beatitudes very briefly. 
trying to show you the progression. And then week after week, we're just gonna take one of these attributes and kind of do a deep dive. Okay, so if we don't explain everything about the Beatitudes today, now you know why. We're going to get to it in a, in a subsequent week. But something I want you to notice as we're painting the Beatitudes in broad strokes, I want you to see that these, all of these promises in Matthew chapter 5, they're future blessings, aren't they? He, you know, Jesus, he's preaching, he says, blessed are the poor in spirit, for there's the kingdom of heaven. Not the kingdom of earth, not right now, but it's a future kingdom. Blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be, shall be comforted. He says they shall inherit the earth. They shall be satisfied. They shall receive mercy. They shall see God. These are all future blessings. This is not preaching a message of God is here to make your life really great right now, that God wants to make you. But there is that message in church, isn't there? You turn on the TV, you're going to hear that message. God wants to make you happy. God wants to make you wealthy. God wants to heal you. God wants to prosper you and bless you and make you rich, famous, popular, and successful. Friends, those are the promises of Prince John. Get your wealth now. Get your fame now. Be comfortable now. With apologies to Joel Osteen, live your best life now. This isn't your best life as believers, friends. This is the closest thing to hell that a believer gets to. Okay, our best life is, is a future blessing. God's children are those who, Hebrews 11 says, we are seeking a homeland. We are seeking a kingdom. We declare we don't belong here. It says, therefore, God is not ashamed to be called their God. We recognize we're here for a time. We don't belong to this Prince John system around us. We belong to a king. So these are all future blessings. And as we review these life signs, you're going to see that I believe, along with a number of theologians, that the Beatitudes and the order in which Jesus gives them is not accidental. That as we look at these life signs of a believer, you're going to see a progression of faith. It begins with the things that we do at the moment we're saved. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed are those who mourn. And again, that's mourning over our sin, not mourning over just a loved one. We're mourning over our sin. Okay, these are the things that we did when we first became a, a believer. Every believer did these things. And then as we grow, some of these other progressions show our growth. It's sort of a growth chart of the Christian life. We start out with being poor in spirit and mourning, but later on it says that we're gonna hunger and thirst after righteousness. It'll say later on that they, they desire to be pure in heart. They wanna be peacemakers. They wanna be active in the service of God. They're willing to suffer for their faith. And so you see this progression from belief, initial baby-like faith, to the point where you can now stack some ministry weight on them, and they're even willing to suffer and at times die for their faith. This is a growth chart of a believer. We're all familiar with growth charts. Probably all of you in your homes, if you've been in your home for any length of time, you have a wall, don't you? And it's sacred to you. Because that wall is where you have marked the ages and the names of your children at times that they grew. You know, you got them down here. They're right about to go to school. You know, you had this little one down here, and isn't that cute? And they get a little bit older, you know, and they, they start to, you know, get into that stage where they're, they're doing things more independently. They're dressing themselves sometimes regrettably, but you know, they're dressing themselves and then you get to that stage where your grocery bill triples, okay? That's right about here, you know? And, and your kid is getting ready to, you know, they're getting bigger and to the point where you now release control of their life. They're mature. They go, you know, they go to college and, they're, and they have jobs of their own. They're supporting families of their own. They're self-sufficient. They've matured in life. 
And now they're even caring after little ones of their own. And we just see that growth chart and we're like, you know, it's just, it's a beautiful thing to observe and watch as a parent. That's the Beatitudes. It's God's growth chart where blessed are those who are poor in spirit. Oh, look at that. We got a little baby here. Oh, blessed are those who mourn over sin, those who hunger and thirst after righteousness, those who are peacemakers, those who are, you know, adults, they are willing to even suffer for their faith. And so this is God's growth chart. We're meant to look at this and see ourselves in this. And we're meant to look at this and and ask God, God, are these qualities that you list in the Beatitudes, especially these early ones, are they present in my life? Am I even a believer? And then we're meant to look at some of these later stages. Am I growing as a Christian or have I stagnated somewhere? And I'm just sort of stuck at a certain stage of life. And that's, so we're meant to compare ourselves in these Beatitudes and to sort of see where we are on God's spiritual growth chart. For that, let's look at the first stage of growth. And that's where we, you know, when we receive life, one of the characteristics is that, number one, we are poor in spirit. Jesus says in verse three, blessed are the poor in spirit for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. Again, blessed. This is somebody upon whom God's blessing and favor rests. It's somebody who is, possesses the fullness of God. They're a believer. A believer is somebody who is poor in spirit. Our spirit refers to our inner man, not our outward man, which is wasting away and perishing, the Bible says. Our inner man is our, is our spirit. It's our identity before God as to who we are. And so when we look at our identity, our spiritual identity before God, we look at our spirit and we are those who would describe ourselves as being poor, poor in spirit. That word poor literally means to cower, cower kind of in fear because we're helpless, we're scared. It would describe those who are impoverished, They can't do anything for themselves. They're entirely dependent upon somebody else for their well-being. It would describe the man in John chapter five where Jesus uh, healed this fellow who was by the pool of Bethesda. And it says, in these lay a multitude of invalids. It's, it's, It's an invalid convention. You got all kinds of invalids gathering at this pool. The blind, the lame, the paralyzed. One man who was there had been there an invalid for 38 years and Jesus saw him lying there and knew he had already been there a long time. He says, do you want to be healed? The sick man said to him, sir, I have no one to put me in the pool when the water is stirred up and while I'm going down, another steps down before me. And so this man amongst invalids, this man is the invalid of invalids. He can't beat another invalid in a foot race. He can't get to the water. And his whole hope of his life is this superstition that if I can get to this water, I'll be healed. And so that's his only hope. And he can't even get there. He's utterly helpless to heal and to save himself. He's dependent fully upon Jesus and his mercy. If you understand that story, you can understand a little bit about what it means to be poor in spirit. But when we come before God, we see ourselves as impoverished. I have nothing to offer God. The reason God saved me is not because I'm smarter than others. It's not because I'm a little more humble than other people. It's not because God saw some kind of intrinsic worth and value in me and said, you know, I gotta have that Gary Hensley in heaven someday. Uh, It isn't because of that. It isn't because of any good that is within us. Instead, when we stand before God, if you will, we cower. There's a certain measure of a godly fear that I have nothing to offer God. I'm an invalid before God. If in any way, when we came to Jesus, we had a sense in which we deserved the salvation, where I had it coming, where I earned 
even a measure of that salvation, that it was a cooperative act between me and God, God did his part, and well, doggone it, I did my part. Friends, can I tell you, if that is your spirit before the Lord, that you and him did this thing together, you are unsaved. You are still in your, I don't care how long you've been to church, you are still unsaved, you are in your sins, and according to scripture, you're going to die someday and you're going to wake up in hell. I don't say that in a condemning way. I say that with all the compassion that I can. I can't imagine a more miserable life than to go to church all my life thinking that I was right with God and then to wake up in hell one day and be one of those that said, Lord, Lord, have we not prophesied? Have we not taught in your name? And he says, depart from me, I never knew you. Because we approached God without being poor in spirit, understanding that I have nothing to offer God. It's not because of me in any way, shape, or form. It's all God and it's not me. That is what it means to be poor in spirit. Look how Titus 3.3 describes us. He says, for we ourselves were once, look at these words, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to various passions and pleasures, passing our days in malice and envy, hated by others and hating one another. Does that offend you that God sees us that way? If in your, I just want you to search your heart. I'm not asking for a show of hands here. But if those words offend you that God sees you that way, it's because right now you are still in your sins. You are lost. You're, I don't care if you've been to church. I don't care if you've walked an aisle and been baptized. You are not converted. You're not born again because God's people are poor in spirit. When God's children read that list, foolish, disobedient, led astray, slaves to passions, we would say, you know, God, we could add a few to that list, couldn't we? I'm actually worse than you think. We're honest with God. God, because the light of his word has shined upon our life, we realize, wow, it's like using one of those magnification mirrors that some of you ladies have, you know, and it like microscopes your face. Talk about magnifying the wrong thing, you know, and that's when you see all of these blackheads and other things that I don't, never worried about, but my wife does, you know, and, and you zoom in and all of a sudden you see, ah, I'm hideous, I'm gross, I'm disgusting. It's because something magnified you and you were able to see yourself accurately for the first time. This is how God sees us and this is how the child of God sees themselves when they approach God. If you're truly born again, God reveals this to us. Isaiah, the godliest man of his day, stands before God and what did he say? I'm a man of unclean lips. When we are in the presence of God, we become very aware of our own sin we become aware of our lostness before him. And even when we are saved, what did Titus say? Verses Titus 3, 4. But when the goodness and loving kindness of God, our God and Savior appeared, he saved us. Not because of works done by us in righteousness, but according to his own mercy. By the washing of regeneration, the renewal of the Holy Spirit, whom he has poured out upon us richly through Jesus Christ, our Savior. So that... Being justified by whose grace? His. It's not something we earn. We don't earn grace. We might become heirs according to the hope of eternal life. Look at all those words, the way he describes our salvation. He made our salvation appeared to us. He saved us. Bible says not by works. It was mercy. That's, that means God has a right to do you harm, judicially speaking. He has a right to punish us but he withholds it, that's mercy. And then it says it was by grace. That's when God gives us something we didn't have coming. I didn't earn this, God gave it to me because he's good. And then he says we were, we were washed. It means something acted upon us to wash us, that was God. 
you ever get a new puppy? You ever try to give that puppy a bath? Because sometimes, I mean, puppies are cute and fun, but puppies can stink. Puppies do some unspeakable things, and you've got to run that puppy under a, in a bathtub under a faucet and use yeah, special puppy shampoo and all those other things, and you grab the puppy because you knew that puppy needed this, and you thrust him under the water, and he scrubbed us, and you washed him, and you poured water on him, and you towel-dried this little guy, and then you snuggled him, and you brought him in close. You couldn't bring him in close when he smells like things. And so you had to wash him. And having done that, you bring him in tight. Friends, this is the picture that Titus is portraying of us when we were saved. He washed us. He brought us in close. And if that is an offensive word to us, friends, it's because we've, we're not poor in spirit. We haven't even come to the first stage of Christian development and growth, that we are poor in spirit before God. Number two, blessed are those who mourn, for they shall be comforted. As I said, this has nothing to do with the fact that I'm just a sad person. I'm mourning over the loss of a job. I'm mourning over uh, a diagnosis I got from the doctor. I'm mourning over a lost loved one. He's not talking about that kind of mourning. He's talking about James 4, 9 kind of mourning, that we are to weep and mourn and wail over our sin. Blessed are those who mourn over their sins. Having been poor in spirit and seeing ourselves accurately before God, our heart's response is mourning. Oh God, how could you ever love me? How could you ever send Jesus to die in my place for me? And we mourn over our sins. There's a term the Bible uses called repentance. That I used to believe that my sins were okay and I would justify them. But now I see my sins are darker than I ever thought. I used to think that God and living a holy, righteous life and walking the straight and narrow was gonna be the worst thing that ever happened to me. Now it's so appealing. I wanna be close to him. I have a desire to be in church. I have a desire to sing, not just because I like singing, but because I wanna worship God. I have a desire to give, not because oh, somebody's watching me, because I want to contribute to what the Lord's doing. I want to be in church, not because somebody's gonna look down on me if I'm not there. I want from the heart, I want to be there. That's what a mourning spirit does. It causes us to sorrow. It says they shall be comforted. And so when we give our lives in repentance, by the word, that word repentance, meta means to change, like metamorphosis. Metanoia, talking about our mind, the noetic part of our, our thinking. Metanoia means a changing the mind. I, I see life differently. God has completely reshaped my worldview. That's happened to every believer. That is what happens to the believer who mourns over his sins. And a believer, once having mourned over his sins, coming to faith in Jesus, is a continually self-reflective individual. Whenever the word of God is preached, we're not doing this number. When are we getting over? I'm going to get to lunch. They're reflecting, God, help me understand the, this word here so that I can apply it better. That's our spirit, an attitude of a true believer. I want to understand God's word so I can live a life that is pleasing to him. In fact, when we talk about the word of God being preached to our hearts and souls, a good litmus test for if you're a believer or not is how do you respond to truth? It's not whether you sin or not. Let's get that one out of the way. All of us sin, even as believers. You still sin, don't you? Don't make me ask your wife to give testimony of this morning and you're coming to church. You know, We sinned on the way to church, so believers still sin. We don't sin the same way, we don't enjoy it the same way, and it grieves our spirit when we do. We're repentant over it. But let's say that there's a sin in our life and that we read maybe in our personal quiet time from the Bible, 
verses that go against the way that we're currently living. Or maybe you come to church and the Bible's preaching against something that we're currently doing. What is your attitude to that? If your first attitude to the preaching of truth is anger and hostility, just understand that that is the response of unbelievers in the Bible. If the word of God and its truth clearly proclaimed and explained to you makes you angry, that's the way unbelievers act. Think about when Stephen was preaching in the book of Acts. And, and Stephen was a tough preacher, man. He got to the place where he's like, you stiff-necked and uncircumcised of heart, how you, you know, he just went on and on and on. And the Bible records that at the, pre and it was true, by the way, Israel was stiff-necked. Jesus would say so and did. But when they heard the truth of the word of God proclaiming how they were in sin, their first response as unbelievers was it says they closed their hands over their ears. They wouldn't listen to it anymore. They rushed upon him. It says they gnashed their teeth at him. You ever been so mad at somebody you gnashed your teeth? They gnashed their teeth at him and they took him and they threw him out of the city and they threw rocks on him until he was dead. That's how unbelievers respond to the truth of the word of God when it confronts sin in their life. How does a believer respond to sin when they're confronted? Let's think about David. How did David respond? David, we all know this story of David. David was married, but yet he saw Bathsheba, desired her for himself, committed adultery with her as the king. And then he had her husband killed to cover up the pregnancy. I've never done that. That's pretty bad. Now, how do you think David's gonna respond when one of their preachers, Nathan, comes in and points a finger at him and says, you're that man. David, you've sinned. You're the guy in my story that you said should be killed. How did David respond? Second Samuel 12, he says, I have sinned before the Lord. Later on, you'll read in Psalm chapter 51, he says, have mercy on me, O God, according to your steadfast love, according to your abundant mercy. Blot out my transgressions and wash me thoroughly from my iniquity and cleanse me from my sin. That's how a believer responds to the preached word of God or to the read word of God when it confronts us in an area of our sin. We don't get hostile and defensive and angry. How dare you? How could you? You have no right to say this to me, Jesus. What gives you the right to say these things to us? That's how an unbeliever responds to truth. Believers, we're moldable and we melt in the hands of God and we say, God, you're right. It was wrong. And it wounds our heart. We're like, we're like Paul, who when he was in sin, Book of Romans says, oh, wretched man that I am, who will deliver me from this body of death? I'm sick and tired of sinning against God. But there isn't a refusal, there isn't a rejection, there's not a hostility or anger toward it. We are mourning over our sin. That's how believers respond to truth. Number three, blessed are the meek, for they shall inherit the earth. All believers ex exercise a certain measure of meekness. Sometimes this word is translated gentleness. This exact same Greek word is found in Galatians 5, 22 and 23, talking about the fruit of the Spirit. It's translated there gentleness, but it's the exact same word, same concept. When you have somebody who is meek, it has nothing to do with the fact that you're weak. It has everything to do with the fact that you're strong, but you're willing to surrender that strength to the power of another, sort of like a horse being willing to be hitched to a wagon. It's that you're willing to surrender. You submit to God and God's authority. That's really what meekness comes down to. And every believer, if you're a true believer, has submitted to God at some point in time, haven't you? Like we just said, Romans 10, 9. We confess him as Lord. That word means master. 
If, we've, if we're not meek in our hearts and we've never surrendered our power to God, exercise that self-control of, you know what? Nevertheless, not as I will, but your will be done. If we've never done that with the Lord, it's because we're not a believer. We all did that with a believer. But beyond that, the application of meekness is we're willing to submit our power to all God-given authority, aren't we? Believers are known. About, he, Ephesians 5 says we are to submit to one another, that we defer to one another. I don't have to push to get my way. A couple of verses later, it'll say, wives, submit to your husbands. Why do you do that? It says, as unto the Lord. Not because he's a great guy. Other places in scripture, Romans 13 says that all authority comes from God. All the authority that exists has been ordained by God. And so he calls us to submit to even our governing authorities on earth. First Peter 2 talks about when you are, you need to submit to your earthly masters, your bosses at work. He says, even the scolia, scoliosis, crooked, okay? Even the crooked ones, the bad ones, you submit to them for the Lord's sake. That's what believer, a growing believer does is we learn to line up under the authorities that God gives us. If that is yours and increasing, it's an evidence that not only are you a Christian, but that you are maturing in your Christianity. Any of you guys ever use a babysitter? You know, you want to take your wife out to a nice steak dinner, you go out to the roadhouse or something, but you don't want to be there with your five little critters climbing around the table and carving their name into the table while you're trying to have a romantic conversation with your wife. So what do you get? You get a sitter and you leave them at home and before you leave home, you place the fear of God in those children, don't you? You will obey Miss Smith here. And if you don't, <laughs> don't ask what's gonna happen. You're not gonna like it. You know, so, so we are an obedient child, a child who is submitted to and loving their mom and dad, what will they also do? They will submit to the authorities that mom and dad put in their life. You, send your, you get the report card, you send your kid off to school and say, from now on, you're gonna listen to your teacher. You're gonna to listen to Miss Dixon, everything she tells you, you're gonna do it, because if I come home, I see another report card like this that says, does not play well with others, does not obey in class, you're in trouble with me. You need to line up under the authorities that I give you as a parent. And same thing with God. We submit to God as our authority, but are we truly submissive to God if we're not submissive to the authorities God has placed in our life? We're not exercising meekness. That's an area of growth in our Christian life. Number four, blessed are those who hunger and thirst for righteousness, for they shall be satisfied. Have you ever noticed that live people like to eat? Go on. Yeah, I know. You're thinking about it already. You're thinking, oh, is this going to be a long sermon because I'm hungry? You're, you're feeling that way because you are, I'm going to venture a guess here, you are physically alive. You probably ate something before church. You're probably munching on something, trying not to be noticed here in church, and you're looking forward to eating something right after church. It's okay, nothing to be ashamed of. We're people that are alive. When you get concerned is when people aren't hungering and thirsting, right? You know, you have a newborn baby and they get, they get sick all the time. They have a little, little nose running and you know, things happen. They're babies, their immune systems are adjusting to life. When you get really concerned is when you call the doctor and say, my baby's sick and now they won't eat. The doctor's like, take them into the emergency room. That's when, I mean, you stop everything, get them in somewhere because now they're in a very dangerous place because they no longer hunger and thirst. Alive people enjoy eating things. It's only the dead and the sick that don't like to eat. That's why you don't see a lot of food trucks parked at the cemetery. Really bad business plan, you know. It's not there because dead people don't like to eat or sick people they don't like to eat. 
Alive people, they eat food, and when they don't, there's a, there's a real problem there. Jesus says one of the evidences, one of the life signs of a believer, one of the marks of a growing Christian is that you increasingly have a hunger, like a, like a teenager going through puberty, man. And you're hungry, and you're just always wanting to eat something. You're constantly, you're thinking about the Word of God. You want to be, you're hungry and thirsting after righteousness. You want to be in the presence of God. You're not looking for reasons not to come to church. You're like, I know I have a broken arm and I, you know, I've been having seizures, but I'm gonna find my way to church. You know, the, you're just like, you, it's because your heart longs to be there. I'm not advocating, by the way, that you do that. But your heart is that I want to be in the presence of God. It's like Psalm 42, one, which talks about as the deer pants for the water, so my soul longs for you. I want to be in the presence of God. My soul thirsts, see that? My soul thirsts for God, for the living God. That is a quality found within a maturing believer. That you're not just doing religious stuff. You from in your heart, you hunger and thirst. You wanna grow, you wanna understand. You don't just wanna stay a baby Christian, an outsider, you wanna, you wanna mature. Number five, blessed are the merciful for they shall receive mercy. Those who have received the mercy of God are merciful people. That's what he's saying. If you receive the mercy of God, you become a merciful person because you've seen yourself for who you are. When we think of ourselves as being better than we are, that's when you get easily offended. It's a symptom of pride. If you're an easily offended person, it's because you're a proud person. How dare you offend one as great and important as I am? If you see yourself as Titus three saw you, that we were slaves to sin and disobedient and so on, we're like, you know what? I'm worse than you think I am. And we don't get easily offended. We see ourselves in light of the holiness of God, and we're like, you know what? God extended me this kind of mercy. I can extend you that little bit of mercy there. And so forgiven people forgive people. We're merciful toward others. Christians, those who are born again and possess the life of God, who recognize that they've been forgiven by God, they're not people who hold grudges, who are vindictive, who are easily offended, easily angered, always upset with people, those are characteristics of a previous life, the old man. One who has been forgiven by God is by necessity somebody who forgives others. One who has been received the mercy of God extends that mercy to other people. And the Bible will go as far as to say that if you're not a merciful, forgiving person, it's because you're lost. You're in your sin and you're going to hell because merciful people, forgiving people, forgive people. Say, do you have scripture for that? Matthew chapter six, verse 14 says, if you forgive others their trespasses, your heavenly father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive others your, their trespasses, neither will your father forgive your trespasses. I wonder what Jesus meant by that. Is Jesus being unclear there? Now, we, it, it's not that we forgive others so that we will be forgiven. He's describing the characteristic of somebody who is a forgiven person. If you're unforgiving, it's evidenced in the fact that you're not willing to forgive others. You're vicious, vindictive, angry, hold grudges, bitter, hostile, easily upset and offended and bothered that when somebody hurts you once, you cut them off and you're done. I don't care if you've been to church all your life, if you walked an aisle, if you've been baptized, you read through the Bible every year and you memorize Psalm 23 as a kid, the Bible says if you're not a merciful, forgiving person and willing to extend and, and try to reconcile with others, he says that is evidence of an unbelieving heart. 
And I say that with love because I don't want anybody to fall into this category. If I really didn't care about you, friends, I would just preach the, the Beatitudes and say, God just wants to make you happy. He wants to make you healthy because all I care about is me. Do you like me? Great. But I care enough about you to tell you what the Beatitudes actually are talking about and what they actually mean. Number six, blessed are the pure in heart, for they shall see God. Who is it that shall see God, who will stand before him and be in heaven one day? He says right here, it's those who are pure in heart. That they, they, there's an inner longing to be holy. Doesn't mean you're a perfect person. Doesn't mean you never sin. But in your heart, don't you just want to be more like God? When you sin, don't you look back at those sins and go, wow, oh, it grieves my heart. God, why do I go back to the slop? God, would you make me pure in heart? I long for the day when you'll take this flesh away from me and all of its desires to be addicted to things. I can't wait till you strip that of me so that I will be holy before you. There's an increasing, as we're maturing, there's an increasing desire to be holy, to be like God. And by the way, friends, that's what God calls us to. Jesus says, be holy even as God is holy. He, not other people, are a standard for what holy looks like. And so we long to be pure in heart. 1 Peter 4, 1 through 6 says, whoever has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin so as to live, in other words, it describes our normative way of life, to live for the rest of his time in the flesh, no longer for human passions, but for the will of God. That's the purpose of my life. Not to indulge my passions of my flesh, but the reason I live is for the will of God. He says, for the time is past that suffices for doing the things the Gentiles, the lost people, the things that we did before Christ in doing sin, he says, you've done it long enough, you don't need to do it anymore. He says, living in sensuality and passions, drunkenness and orgies, drinking parties and lawless idolatry. He says, we don't wanna live like that anymore. He says, so that they might live in the spirit the way God does. Blessed are the pure in heart. In other words, look at that growth chart. Do you see an increasing desire to be holy? Do you continue to look at your life and go, wow, I used to think that was a funny joke. Wow, I used to think that was a good TV show and I pushed that on to watch it again and I, I'm shocked by what I used to think was okay. Are, do you have an increasing desire to be holy? Oh, I used to listen to that, but wow, listen to those lyrics, that's filthy. I used to read that book and I look back at it now and go, whatever made me think that was something good that I should ingest? That's a sign that you're, you're longing to be further away from the world. Your longingness is not to try to be as close to the world as possible without going to hell. Your longingness is, I wanna be as far away from that old life as I possibly can get. That's an indicator that you're growing and maturing in Christ. Number seven, blessed are the peacemakers. He says, for they shall be called the sons of God. This is an interesting word, peacemaker. It's only found here in the Bible in this passage in the Beatitudes. A peacemaker, to understand what a peacemaker is, we need to understand what kind of peace we're talking about. We're talking about peace with God, not just generally peace, but peace with God. A peacemaker is, you remember Jesus came to earth to make peace between man and God. He's our mediator, he comes between us and God. That prior to Christ, man and God were at odds with each other, aren't we? Where the Bible describes us as enemies of God. 
James 4.4 would even say that friendship with the world puts us at enmity with God, that we are separated, that God is hostile toward us. His, the, the wrath of God abides on us. And when Jesus came and through his shed blood on the cross for us, it says that he makes, he makes peace between us and the Father. Blessed are the peacemakers mean that now you see the mission of God as your mission. I wanna make peace with others. I wanna make peace with God. I may wanna make peace with other people. I wanna be part of the mission of God. I wanna serve God. This is really the step, I think, in a believer's growth where on the growth chart, you're really getting, you're, you're kind of maturing, kind of puberty stages, you know, and maybe 18 years old or so. You're, you're getting up there because you're now taking on your life's responsibilities. And, and not only that, but you are serving other people. That's when you know your child is really growing up. It's not just that they can take care of themselves. Are they taking care of other people? Do they put others' needs before themselves? Do they help out around the house? You know, they have kids. Do they, do they serve their wife and kids? Or do they, does everybody still serve them? That's a sign of immaturity. And it's also a sign of spiritual immaturity. When we don't want to be involved in what God is doing, we don't want to serve God, we don't want to be involved in ministries, I just want to come to church, I want to sit in, I want to punch my card, I want to go home. Friends, you're not high up on the Christian maturity chart yet. It's when we take the mission of God upon ourselves, and we want to do what Jesus did. And we see, because of our love for him, we see it as important that we're involved in that mission of God. That's when we're getting higher up. People who are peacemakers, they're not the people who are coming to church and being grouchy. Uh, pastor preached too long, again. I didn't get anything out of that sermon. Oh, these pews, who bought these pews? They're so old, they're so hard, I hate these pews. It's too cold in here, it's too hot in here. It's too this, it's too that. Why do we do this? Why don't we have this? Why, is it, why did we play this song that I don't know? I don't like this, I don't. Who does that sound like? It sounds like your five-year-old on a road trip. You ever take little kids on a road trip? Isn't that fun? You know, you do your best to try to pack them up with snacks and entertainment, but they're still gonna find something they don't like. I'm bored. Yeah, I did everything you gave me, I'm bored. I'm hungry. I gave you goldfish. I ate them all. What else have you got? I gotta go potty, Mom. I gotta go. Uh, Jimmy's poking me. Can we just go home? I'm bored. I'm uncomfortable. And we just kind of announce our discomfort to everybody with the implication of, Mom and Dad, you're here to serve me. Hello. But what are the mature people in the car doing? I mean, the wife, she's sitting next to you, or the husband, they could be talking about their sore back. Oh, this road trip's awful. I'm so sore. I'm so bored. But they don't because they're mature. They're not talking about how hungry they are. They have bladders that get full too, but they don't sit here and just gripe about it to everybody in the road trip. What do they do? They just, they hold it in, they wait, and they, they go when they can. And what do they spend their time doing in that car? They're taking care of the kids. They're helping the kids. They're getting them their food. They're settling fights. They're caring for the needs of others. This is a sign of maturity as a peacemaker, friends, that when we can get to the place where we're caring for the spiritual needs of other people, that's when you know you're really growing up in the Christian life. You don't just wanna be served. The church isn't just about you and your wants and desires. You're willing to suffer even so that you can take care of the needs of other people. Friends, that's when you're getting high up on God's growth chart. And finally, it leads us to number eight. Blessed are the persecuted 
for righteousness sake, for theirs is the kingdom of God. This is, if you will, I believe one of the highest levels of maturity that Jesus gives us on this growth chart here. Not only are you all of these inner qualities, not only are you caring for the spiritual needs of others, but you're willing to suffer for your faith. You're suffer, willing to suffer for doing what's right. You're willing to be obedient to God even when it costs you something. Now, when we think of persecuted, more, most often we only think about, you know, somebody being stoned to death, you know, hung or something, you know, they're, they're being beaten with rods, you know, that's persecution. But persecution takes a lot of forms, doesn't it? It's any kind of emotional or physical discomfort that we experience for doing what is right. And God says, blessed are you. You're truly a child of God when you're willing, like Jesus, to suffer for what you know to be right. A sign of immaturity, friends, is when we're not willing to suffer for what's right. In other words, I go to work and all of a sudden I change my convictions about a seven-day creation because I don't want to get laughed at. I don't want people, I won't ever share the gospel because it's uncomfortable. It makes me feel icky inside. So I won't do that. I just feel bad. I don't like doing that. So I just won't do it. I won't do anything that makes me feel uncomfortable. That's a sign of immaturity. Children don't like to do anything that's uncomfortable. Oh, the water's too cold. I don't want to go swimming. They won't suffer any discomfort at all. If it makes them feel bad, feel icky, feel uncomfortable, feel uneasy, they won't ever push past to do the right thing. Same thing in the spiritual life, that there are Christians who are unwilling to feel icky inside. And so they just, they back away from what they know is truth and obedience to the word of God. I won't share the gospel because it makes me feel uncomfortable. I won't pray in public because somebody might see me. I won't confront another believer because there's, you know, there's maybe hostility between you. That's what mature believers do. But it makes you feel uncomfortable if you, if you how oh, I don't want to come to church anymore because, well, you see, three weeks ago, I had this fight with this one person at, at church, and now I don't come to church anymore because I just feel awkward when I'm in church now around them. So I just decided to leave this church and bounce to another church where I haven't yet busted up my relationships. Is that how a believer's supposed to be, by the way? That you just abandon and church hop because every time you have a fight, well, I had a fight, never go back there. Let's find another church until I have another fight, and then I'll go to another one. Is that what a mature believer does? And by the way, please never give people this advice. Worst advice I've ever heard. When somebody has a fight and they, they feel uncomfortable coming to church and you tell them, well, you know what? Go ahead and leave. You need to go somewhere where you can worship. Is that biblical? Let me tell you why it's not. Because where you can worship is, is right where you just were. Matthew 5.23, what does Jesus say? If you go to the altar, you've gone to a place of God to worship, and you realize and you remember, ah, oh, my brother has ought against me. He, we have a problem between me and a brother. What does he say? Find another temple. No, what does he say? First, go to that brother, be reconciled to him, then come back to the very same place you just were and offer your gift. So when we have problems with one another in church, we don't just bounce and go somewhere where I can worship. Somewhere where you can worship has nothing to do with your feelings and how you feel. Mature Christians can endure emotional and physical suffering for doing the right thing. That means that if I have a problem with Jamie, I'm gonna come right to Jamie and we're gonna talk about it. Yes, it's uncomfortable, but that's what mature Christians do. In fact, one of the, in the Proverbs, one of the evidences that we're a mature believer when we are wise Proverbs 19.11 says, good sense makes one 
slow to anger. So wise people, mature people, people who are higher up on God's growth chart, they're not easily upset. They're slow to anger. Furthermore, he says this, and it is his glory to overlook an offense. It is to his glory that people honor the individual who's willing to do this, that they get hurt feelings, they get offended about something, but they, instead of just causing trouble, they either go directly to that person or at times it's, it's not a big deal. I'm just going to overlook this offense, not hold it against them. You know that word overlook is a really neat word. That Hebrew word is the exact same word used in the book of Exodus to describe this, the Passover of God. Did you know that? This word literally means, to pa- it's his glory to pass over an offense. You remember the Passover and God sending out that death angel and he's killing the firstborn male of every home? How many of you would that have killed? Me and many others. And God had every right to kill anybody who's not willing to live by faith. But instead, God doesn't as long as you're willing to, remember, paint blood on the doorpost of your home. And then because of that blood, God will pass over his judgment. God had a right to harm the people within that home. But instead of doing that, he's gonna pass over them because of the blood. That is what Proverbs 19 is asking for us to do. When we suffer for righteousness sake, we're willing to be uncomfortable, to do, do things that are awkward and difficult for us, it's a sign of maturity. When somebody hurts us and they hurt our feelings and they're upset about something, and I'll either go to them directly, but if it's something small, I'm just willing to pass over them. I have a legal right to be upset with them. But because of the blood of Jesus, I'm going to pass it over. I'm going to look over it. I'm going to get past that. And so, blessed are those who are persecuted for righteousness' sake. You're willing to endure emotional and or physical hardship. And friend, physical hardship is coming. I mean, look around. We're not the home team in America anymore. If we're not preparing for even the possibility of the threat of physical harm for what we believe, then we've got our head in the sand. These days are coming, and God wants his children to be measuring themselves against the growth chart of the Christian life and saying, God, where am I currently? And Lord, by your grace, will you help me to get to that next level? Will you cause these things to be in my life and increasing? That's the Beatitudes. It's the growth chart of the Christian life. Father, we thank you tonight, this morning, as we study this, this shocking passage The people, I'm sure, the first time they heard this message were extremely displeased, but Jesus still preached it. To even intimate or imply that these people may not be children of God, even though they've been to synagogue all their life, is a highly offensive, it's an affront to their character, and yet Jesus spoke these words because it was necessary. Lord, I pray today that as we review the Beatitudes, you'd cause each one of us to measure ourselves against this growth chart. Help us to see whether or not, you know, we're low on this chart, if we're maturing in this chart, or if we're even on the chart at all. Perhaps we're not even poor in spirit. That pride is still preventing us from walking across that line of faith and and trusting ourselves to you agreeing with you and confessing our sins that I am, I am every bit as bad as what you say I am, but I'm clinging to the goodness of Jesus. Father, help us to measure ourselves. And by your strength and your grace, will you, will you cause us to grow, to be like you, that we might be truly those who are blessed, those who possess the fullness of God. We ask in Christ. Amen. 
from all of us here at Unity, we would like to thank you for spending time with us today. If you would like to know how to surrender your life to Christ, or if you'd like to share a response, visit us at www.unitybaptistashland.com. We would love the opportunity to help you in your next steps. You can also connect with us on Facebook at UBC Ashland. If you like what we're doing, don't forget to like and subscribe and share our podcast. Until next time, may we do as Psalm 119.10 says, With my whole heart I seek you. Let me not wander from your commandments. 